Welcome to today's American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. My name is Scott Pryor, and I'm a professor of law at Regent University School of Law. This semester, I'm also the American Bankruptcy Institute resident scholar. Insolvency and bankruptcy professionals are well aware of how difficult it is to raise capital for businesses in financial distress. And anyone who knows anything about securities law knows how difficult, time-consuming, and expensive it is to raise money in the public capital markets. Today, it is my pleasure to talk to David McGrail of McGrail and Benziger in New York City. David has written a very interesting article that appeared in February's issue of the ABI journal titled, Crowdfunding a Chapter 11 Plan. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then explain just what crowdfunding is. Sure. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate the opportunity to discuss this, uh, this very interesting topic. My name, as Scott mentioned, is Dave McGrail. I am a bankruptcy and restructuring attorney at McGrail & Benzinger. Uh, we're a boutique bankruptcy firm in Manhattan. We represent debtors, trustees, creditors, acquirers, and other persons and parties in Chapter 7 and 11 bankruptcy cases, adequate restructurings and preference and other bankruptcy litigation. And to start off uh, in response to your question, Scott, crowdfunding is an Internet-based approach to fundraising for a specific project or a cause. What happens in crowdfunding is backers of the project or the cause contribute through a website, which is owned by an intermediary crowdfunding company, one of the most notable is Kickstarter. The project usually sets a specific fundraising goal and a deadline, and if the project and only if the project succeeds in reaching that goal, the backers' credit cards are charged. In exchange, they receive a small gift, recognition on a website, or a promise to be the first uh, able to purchase the new item. In other words, something of less economic value than the pledge they made. The crowdfunding industry, Scott, has taken off in the last few years, basically doubling in size each of the last four years, and crowdfunding platforms now, in 2012, raised approximately $2.8 billion. So it's, it's a burgeoning industry. Yeah, that's a, a lot more money than I think uh, most of us would have realized. Are there any particular uh, businesses or other entities that are using crowdfunding? Well, at this point, for the most part, I think it's primarily a vehicle for startups. And just to give a couple examples and to add some color to the discussion, one such company um, uh, called Oculus Rift produces virtual reality headsets for video games. And that company raised about $2.5 million through crowdfunding. And in return, the backers received T-shirts, and additional items and perks the more they pledged. A uh, second example of a, another startup company that raised money through crowdfunding is a company called Pebble, which developed a smart wristwatch, and they raised about $10.3 million through crowdfunding. So uh, in that case, those who pledged uh, were promised free watches when the product came out. And then on a smaller scale, something um, near and dear to my heart, actually, there is a, a crowdfunding um, initiative for a film on pickup basketball in New York City, that, a documentary that explores the cultural and social impact of New York City's pickup basketball scene, something that I like to do in my free time. And I would love to see the documentary. For $25, you can download the film two weeks before everyone else gets to see it. Um, 
You know, I, this, this is a smaller-scale project. They only need $40,000, and I, I may very well uh, make a pledge. So those are three examples, um, but all relate to startup companies, and that's really where, you know, where crowdfunding began. I think that the landscape is shifting, um, and we can talk about that in a bit from, from simply startups to potentially the distressed industry. But for the, for the most part, it still is, um, uh, still is a, startup, a startup vehicle. Are there any limits as things currently stand, either the minimum or the maximum out that, uh, uh, that anybody who wants to contribute in a crowdfunding sort of way can, can make? Well, there are no there are no limits on the contributions right now that can be made. the The limits are um, are the uh, is the consideration that those who make pledges are able to receive. And specifically, what I'm referring to is the prohibition on providing uh, backers with equity in the company. As I mentioned, it's it's limited for now to. Trinkets, you know, promises, little, little thank yous, basically, for the pledges they're making. But um, there's no monetary limit, but there are there are legal limits, and that's I think uh, the subject. Uh, the, the changes in the law, uh, that's you know part of the subject of this discussion. Yeah, that's a good introduction, to David. Uh, there, tell us about what has happened, well, or what happened in 2012 that may significantly change the uh, use of uh, crowdfunding going forward. Okay, so in April of 2012, President Obama signed the JOBS Act. JOBS Act stands for the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act. It's divided into six titles, and the two titles that uh, I focused on in my article and that I think we're going to focus on today are uh, Title II, which is Access to Capital for Job Creators, and Title III, which is Crowdfunding. And... To address crowdfunding first, um, and to tie back to the comment about the uh, consideration that backers can receive for their their pledges, the crowdfunding provisions of the Jobs Act basically add an exemption for issuers that raise money through crowdfunding. So in other words, when the SEC finally gets around to publishing the rules implementing these provisions, backers will be able to receive equity of a crowdfunded company provided that the issuers and the investors satisfy certain criteria. So, so suddenly the folks that are receiving, you know, uh, T-shirts, um, recognition on the website are going to be potentially in a position to get a slice of the pie, you know, a, a stake in the company that they are funding. And that's, that, that is going to occur when the, if and when <laughs> the SEC gets around to uh, issuing final regulations to implement um, that legislation. Yeah, what's the status of, uh, of that process, the SEC uh, regulatory uh, uh, issuance? Well, it's been delayed. The, um, the rules were supposed to be issued last month in January. That hasn't happened, much to the dismay of the crowdfunding industry and various associations. Um, and that the same is true, actually, for the, uh, the second part of the discussion that we're, that we're going to um, get into, which is uh, the, the larger scale changes um, in Article 2 of the Jobs Act. But the, the, with respect to crowdfunding, we've been waiting for those regulations. They were supposed to um, be issued by January, mid-January. 
that January came and went, um, and as uh, the listeners may know, we have a new chief of the SEC, and that may be part of the reason for the delay. Of course, the SEC has its hands full with Dodd-Frank issues, so maybe this is uh, on the back burner, but um, it, it's anyone's guess as to when those regulations are going to come out, uh, but I think uh, everyone's waiting. Do you think there'll be any difference in the nature of crowdfunding when it moves from the current uh, contributory model to an investment model? Scott, there's no doubt that the dynamic will change. As it currently stands, if a crowdfunding company doesn't show proper appreciation to its contributors, it will hear from them. But the contributors don't really expect all that much more, and they certainly do not expect a profit. But when their contributions become investments, their motivations and agendas will obviously change. Investors are already entitled to certain background information about the crowdfunding company under the JOBS Act. I think it's a good bet that they will want information about the performance of the crowdfunding company following their investment, and they may even want some control over the company, which could raise some sticky corporate governance issues. On the flip side of it, before a company decides to crowdfund, it will have to be prepared to deal with a more active group of supporters, and the principals may have to cede some control that they would otherwise enjoy under a contributory model. Equity-based crowdfunding, I think, will be more complicated than the relatively simple, streamlined contributory model that currently exists. There will definitely be some growing pains. And uh, then moving a little bit closer to uh, the heart of the American Bankruptcy Institute, we've been talking so far about crowdfunding, in essence, in connection with startups. Uh, based on your experience, how do you think crowdfunding might intersect with the world of uh, insolvency and bankruptcy practice? Well, first let me say that um, it, I see rumblings in that direction just over the last couple of months, indeed since the article was published. Um, in particular, starting with individuals, and there have been articles that have been published over the last few months in, in the New York Times and Time Magazine on this. Um, the, there has been crowdfunding by folks with crushing student loan debt or medical bills in an attempt to, to raise money in that manner. Um, and then moving to companies for a second, I guess we'll call this um, you know, distressed crowdfunding, just very close to home here, down um, on South Street, there have uh, been a number of businesses in lower Manhattan that were devastated by Sandy and are now making an effort through crowdfunding to, um, to pick themselves up. Um, I even noticed, and this is a little bit different context because the crowdfunding is by a potential buyer, but I noticed that down in Delaware in the THQ case, a uh, number of followers of the science, uh, the sci-fi computer game franchise Homeworld are attempting to raise money to buy certain assets in that bankruptcy. And then finally, um, interestingly, and sort of a, on a humorous note, um, there was a post in Forbes just a month or two ago, uh, an article that was entitled, Can Union-Backing, Union-Backed Crowdfunding Rescue Hostess from Bankruptcy? And the article was tongue-in-cheek, but nonetheless, it, it gave rise uh, to a crowdfunding campaign to save Hostess called Doe for Hostess. So this is just, these are very small examples, and, you know, we certainly have seen, um, you know, crowdfunding on a large scale in a distressed situation. I, I think it's going to be exciting when we do. I think the, 
Now, the rules have to go in effect before that can happen. Um, if you go onto Lexis and you search for crowdfunding in all courts, in all jurisdictions, you'll get exactly one hit, which is not a bankruptcy case. So it's, uh, it's something that I think that we're going to see at some point, um, hopefully in the next few months, not a few years, and, and be able to deal with in the bankruptcy context. Now, one thing I should mention about, um, about crowdfunding, which you know, we need to keep in mind as we're thinking about the scale of this, uh, this new way of raising money in a bankrupt, potentially in a bankruptcy context, the, the, the rules and the statute are going to limit offerings by an issuer to a million dollars in aggregate during any 12-month period. So you're not going to see crowdfunding you know, to the tune of $50 million. It's not actually something that could happen in Hostess. Um, and on the investor side, it, there are certain limitations as well. Investors with less than $100,000 in net worth or annual income can only invest the greater of $2,000 or 5% of their annual income or net worth. And investors with more than $100,000 in annual income or net worth may only invest 10% of their annual income or net worth not to exceed $100,000. So there are limitations on the amount of money that can be raised through crowdfunding and also um, on uh, how much each investor can contribute. So that's, you know, that is going to certainly limit its applicability both inside and outside of the bankruptcy context. Even though it's, we're talking about relatively small dollar amounts here, uh, David, do you think there's a possibility that this new access to capital will help with uh, reorganizing uh, uh, smaller businesses? Scott, I, I hope so. Um, and just on a personal note, the, you know, the genesis for my interest in this issue arose dealing with a, a small business debtor in New York that was trying to find a way to restructure um, and suggested that because they had such loyal customers that perhaps they could you know, convince those customers to chip in. And this was back in, uh, I think, May or June of 2012. Um, you know, I, I honestly dismissed the idea for the most part, and, and fortunately a better, better alternative presented itself, and the client was able to emerge successfully without the need to crowdfund. But it did get me thinking that, that maybe this is, you know, a way to turn the tide. I think that in the past few years, it's become increasingly more difficult for a small business to successfully reorganize through Chapter 11. And maybe crowdfunding is, is hopefully, uh, hopefully moving things in a better direction with, in that respect. You know, in particular, I would hope that in a small business context, you might be able to find those loyal customers, patrons, clients, that you know it, are already willing to make pledges and contribute to a company without even receiving equity. And now, if you throw the equity into the mix and give them an opportunity to have a stake in the business going forward, well, perhaps that's something that that would appeal to them. And I'd also note that some of the obligations on the part of the issuer um, under the crowdfunding law, to a large extent, track what small businesses are required to provide in the way of a disclosure statement anyway. So hopefully that would alleviate some of the burden um, that would otherwise you know, have to be shouldered by these small businesses. They are basically, and I think this is a legal issue that 
maybe courts decide sometime down the road, but is the information that they have to provide already to their investors as required by the crowdfunding statute sufficient to to basically um, you know meet the, the disclosure statement requirements under the bankruptcy code? Uh, you know, David, it's also a problem for uh, you know small businesses in Chapter 11 to be able to find a new capital, especially the cost of uh, uh, hiring an investment banker. Might crowdfunding provide some uh, solution to that as well? Absolutely, Scott. This is a potential low-cost means of raising capital without the need, um, you know, for an investment banker that these small businesses can't afford, especially in Chapter 11. So I think that's a, a very good point. David, in terms of uh, crowdfunding, who's doing the uh, the legwork here? Who is the who are the companies that are arranging for and soliciting and facilitating uh, crowdfunding uh, investments? So there are there are portals. They're they're similar, I guess, on a smaller scale than the investment banks in the Title II context. There are there are portals such as Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and the like. Um, as I mentioned, they you know they're primarily used for for crowdfunding in the in the uh, startup space. But they take a you know they hold the money, and then when the um, when the uh, criteria are met and um, the amount of uh, funds that need to be raised are raised, they release that money and they take a fee, usually a flat fee associated with that. So, I mean, the industry has branched out um, into you know highly specialized crowdfunding companies. Kickstarter is a, a fairly general one, as is Indiegogo, but you can find crowdfunding portals for you know that are that basically are are uh, geared toward any particular industry the music industry you know artists film technology etc well i think we've uh, answered quite a few of uh, my questions anyway about uh, title 3 of the jobs act dealing with uh, crowdfunding and especially because the dollar amounts are going to be relatively limited is there anything in the changes uh, in uh, title 2 of the jobs act that will uh, open the doors to additional access to the capital markets for firms in financial distress. Uh, yes, yes, and, and the changes could have greater importance given that in 2011, capital raised in Rule 506 offerings was about $90 billion and about $170 billion in Rule 144A offerings. So um, just to back up for a second, Rule 506 of Regulation D is an often used safe harbor for the private offering exemption of Section 4, Sub 2 of the Securities Act that deals with accredited investors, while Rule 144A of the Securities Act is a safe harbor that deals in resales uh, with respect to qualified institutional buyers. And prior to the Jobs Act, issuers were not able to take advantage of these safe harbors if they engaged in any form of general solicitation or advertising with respect to the new securities um, as prohibited by Rule 502C. The Jobs Act amends that rule and lifts the prohibition against general solicitation and advertising, provided that the seller takes reasonable steps, and we can get back to that in a second and what that means, but reasonable steps to verify that the purchasers of the securities are accredited investors there are similar types of amendments to Rule 144A, and the the long and the short of it is that 
um, issuers will be able to offer, again, if these regulations ever uh, are finalized, issuers will be able to offer securities on a website, uh, potentially raising capital in an entirely new manner. Yeah, I mean, there have always been, uh, you know, these uh, two exemptions uh, uh, from a securities law. How will these changes, the opening up, if you will, increase the opportunity for additional funds to be raised? So th- these changes are additive. They don't, uh, they don't supersede any of the existing exemptions. Those ex- exemptions are still available. Um, they create potential, they simply create potential financing options, additional financing options for companies inside and out of, outside of bankruptcy. Greater options means the potential for reducing the cost of capital and maybe even the transaction costs associated with raising that capital. And I think, you know, the, the, to try to sort of see it from a practical standpoint, it, um, a broker uh, who's no, no longer required if they are um, if they are implementing and facilitating offerings under this, you know, Rule 506, would no longer be required to go through the full-fledged registration process. But it would be a broker-dealer who specializes in this field. I think setting up a website and you know, offering the securities to the public, as long as they, as long as they have, take reasonable steps to ensure that the the investors are accredited investors, and and that's that's an open issue right now, but. Um, it's it's basically democratizing finance for you know potential large investments. I think uh, some people, David, have expressed some concern that uh, by opening up the door, if you will, to uh, to advertising and website based uh, solicitation for investments, that uh, fraudsters who are never far behind will be quick to take advantage of it. What what thoughts are going on in the investment uh, practice community about this problem? So I, I think those are legitimate concerns, and both the crowdfunding and the Title II um, provisions attempt to deal with that to some degree. Just to, to back up for a second, and we should probably cover this point with respect to crowdfunding, the, there are, and I, I actually happen to think that there are pretty strong um, investor protections in that context. Investors are required to receive educational materials that, you know, require them to affirm that they understand the risks. The um, the SEC is going to take measures is going to provide for rules requiring the um, the issuers to take measures to reduce fraud. Issuer certain in- issuer information similar to what you'd see in a disclosure statement context must be provided to the investors. There's a waiting period um, between when that information is provided and when the uh, the investors can actually make their investment, and it appears that they can even cancel their investments in accordance with rules that the SEC is going to presumably set out. So that's the that's the um, the crowdfunding context where there are strong investor protections. Now, on the on the Title II side, what the SEC has said is that it believes that the risks of fraud are mitigated by the fact that that the issuer is still only selling to accredited investors. 
and, and of course, we know in other contexts you can get exemptions by selling to a certain limited number of non-accredited investors, and that those issuers are also you know remain subject to securities anti-fraud rules. Um, now, in my personal opinion, that, that's not the most compelling argument for for fraud protection, and I do think that, um, and I hope that the SEC issues final rules that um, create uh, stronger investor protections because I, I, I don't really buy in, and I, and I agree with um, a lot of the consumer advocacy groups' uh, letters to the SEC about the, the risks here. Um, so just to talk quickly about the timing so that I can put that in some context, and then um, to mention a, you know, a little bit more about why there is this concern over fraud, uh, and, and privacy concerns and the like. Right now, we are waiting. I mentioned that the uh, the uh, crowdfunding rules have not even come out. There were Title II rules that were issued in August, but they were not final rules. They were available for public comment, and the public uh, has weighed in and, uh, with many different voices, and we are, again, waiting for those rules to be finalized. Um, the SEC said that they would seek to finalize them within 30 days. They were issued preliminarily in August, and you know here we are in February. So as with crowdfunding, and maybe for some of the same reasons, there's been significant delay on the Title II front, and we're waiting for final rules. But one of the major reasons why there are concerns about fraud here and, and concerns that it might not work as the SEC envisions and some, um, you know, some others envision is because the issuers are required to take reasonable steps to make sure that the investors are accredited investors, but the SEC has refused to create a bright, a bright line stating what constitutes reasonable steps. Um, in fact, it's, it is a standard like none you could ever imagine. <laughs> uh, it's, it includes... Uh, you know, very wishy-washy examples, um, and maybe I'm editorializing here a bit, but it includes a number of examples on you know, the, the nature of the offering, the status of the purchaser, the amount and type of information that the issuer has about the purchaser, perhaps pre-existing relationship that the issue has with the purchaser. And then it go, the rules go so far as to say, well, you know, maybe we need to see W-2s, from these investors, perhaps verification by independent accountants. If they are officers of public companies, perhaps disclosures that have been made and the like. What is clear, however, is that a representation from a purchaser that they are an accredited investor probably is not sufficient. So you need something more than that. And it's just not clear what that is um, and, and whether there is going to be investor fraud or problems will be created because because nobody knows exactly what it means to take reasonable steps. One interesting offshoot of this may be that a cottage, a cottage industry could de- could develop to to assist issuers in in taking reasonable steps to verify uh, whether uh, investors are accredited investors as well as opinion work for attorneys. So, you know, it, it's going to be fascinating to see how the issuers deal with this, with this requirement, which is, 
um, you know, very fuzzy at best. Well, David, too, uh, we've talked a bit about it from the point of view of issuers, whether they're, you know, startup uh, or issuers that may be in financial distress. What about the intermediaries? And I'm thinking here particularly of uh, uh, the investment banking firms. How might they uh, leverage themselves into this uh, new uh, investment space? So I think there's an opportunity here um, for investment banking firms. You know, there are also a lot of questions that the legislation raises. Um, There is the possibility that they could those existing investment banks will open up new practices and, you know, I'm not sure if crowdfunding is going to be big enough for them, but, you know, basically um, take advantage of, of the new legislation through, through Title II. But one major problem that I see here is that the language of the statute, um, in addition to attempting to... to prevent there from being conflicts of interest, which of course is a good thing. The legislation also prohibits compensation, quote-unquote, in connection with the purchase or sale of a security. So there's an interpretive question there as to whether a platform uh, could charge a flat fee or, you know, what, what exactly they can charge for. Is a flat fee in connection with the purchase or sale of a security? Um, can they charge a success fee, you know, similar to what you might see in a bankruptcy context? Maybe not. So I think that there needs to be some clarification from the SEC, hopefully, exactly what they mean by this, what, you know, what is considered appropriate conference compensation under the statute. And, and once that is clarified, I, you know, I, I think there are opportunities here for for enterprising investment banking firms and, and others. And, in fact, um, there are other companies that are cropping up and simply waiting on the sidelines until this legislation and the, the uh, regulations are finalized and they can go forward. Very good. Okay, that, uh, that about does it for questions from my end, David, and I hope this has been useful to uh, all our listeners as we look into uh, a window on uh, new and different ways to provide uh, capital for firms in distress. We'll probably get back together again after the uh, final regulations have been issued and we can be a little more specific about uh, what can and cannot be done. Great. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I look forward to uh, further discussions. Until our next podcast, this is Scott Pryor on behalf of the American Bankruptcy Institute. 